0: We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man, ministering, performing miracles, and most importantly, teaching who he is and what life is all about. And we know that the life of Jesus is documented in four books in the Bible that are called the Gospels. Three of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, were written by three of Jesus' disciples who really lived with him as he was ministering for those three crucial years of his life. The fourth Gospel is written by a man named Luke, who was a physician and a historian of around the same time who wrote his gospel as a thoroughly researched historical record of the ministry of Jesus. And today we're going to be in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. And I love to always say this, you don't have to agree with what I teach today. My goal is to simply show you what the word of God says. And if you disagree, I want to challenge you to come up with a good reason why. And saying, I don't like the way that makes me feel or the way that sounds is not a good reason. I want to invite you to be concerned with truth because there's nothing more important than the truth. And so if you disagree, research it for yourself. Care deeply about truth because nothing matters more than the truth. The last week we got to listen in and watch as a corrupt and hated man named Zacchaeus had his life completely changed by Jesus. And we were blown away by what an example this man was of how we should receive Jesus into our own lives with great joy, no concern for the cost, completely overwhelmed by the kindness of God. And this week, Jesus is going to stop by the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus one last time before his crucifixion and death. Many Bible commentators see in this event a picture of the church, and I think we're gonna find that's pretty accurate. But even more compelling is going to be the picture of worship that's going to emerge. If you are someone who loves Jesus, then tune in, because today we're gonna learn about the kind of worship that Jesus loves, how to worship in a way that blesses Jesus, and we're going to learn why that's really the only factor in worship that matters. So we're going to jump in near the end of John chapter 11 at verse 55, John 11 verse 55, I'll read it with you. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he'll not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. As the city of Jerusalem swelled to somewhere between one and three million people due to the pilgrims coming into the city for the Passover, the city was buzzing with talk of Jesus, because word had spread across the whole country that the Pharisees and the chief priests wanted him dead. And just like telling a child, whatever you do, don't push that button, this immediately piqued the curiosity of everyone in Israel who began to wonder well, what is this Jesus teaching? What is he doing that is so dangerous that our religious leaders want to kill him? And so they're all talking among themselves and wondering aloud will he show himself? He's a devout Jew. It's the Passover. He's an able-bodied man, which means he's supposed to be in Jerusalem for Passover, but the leaders in Jerusalem want to kill him. Is he going to show up? Everyone is wondering this. Well, as we go through this, I'm going to add some detail from Mark's gospel in order to give us the full picture of what's happening. So we're going to move right along into the next chapter of John, verse one. It says, Then six days before the Passover, just six days before Jesus will be crucified. Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, and then underline, whom he had raised from the dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And you may recall that Bethany was a small town on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives just two miles east of Jerusalem. It was a great place to stay during a feast because you were outside of the busyness of the big city but were only a short walk away from it. It was the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, a family Jesus considered to be among his closest friends and whose house he would often stay at during his visits to Jerusalem. Mark tells us that the meal that we're about to read about took place at the house of Simon the leper, and though the miracle is not recorded anywhere in the gospels, it's safe to assume, because he's living in the town and among other people, that Simon was someone whom Jesus had healed from leprosy. Mark calls him Simon the leper to let us know he used to be a leper, and it's very likely this meal was prepared for Jesus out of gratitude. Church tradition, not the scriptures, church tradition actually holds that Simon was the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Verse 2, let's move on. It says, There they made him a supper, and Martha served, underline, Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And I just love this. Pick, Pick up on this. Lazarus went all the way from being dead in the grave to sitting at the table with Jesus, feasting with the Lord. It's the exact same journey, the exact same destiny of anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. We've been raised to life and we will sit and feast with our Lord very, very soon. So make a note of this. The church is where those who were once dead fellowship at the Lord's table. The church is where those who were once dead fellowship at the Lord's table. Now we're going to do this literally one day at the wedding supper of the Lamb, but we do it today through communion in anticipation of that day. But that's a picture to have in your mind as well, that like Lazarus, you were in the grave, you were dead till Jesus raised your spirit to life and now invites you to fellowship with him. And we have Martha, who previously and famously complained when she was working, but her sister Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And you may recall the famous story, Jesus tells her that Mary has chosen the more important task. And so now we see that Martha has learned her lesson, she's keeping her mouth shut, she's serving joyfully, and she's not worrying about what anyone else is doing, she's not comparing herself to others. So make a note of this, just a simple but a good reminder. The right way to serve is without complaining. The right way to serve is without complaining, especially in the house of the Lord, in the church. Verse 3 then Mary, underline Mary, this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of Spikenard. I think that's something we're all familiar with. Uh, (laughs) It was a type of uh, generic perfume that was extremely expensive. In fact, this perfume, when you run the numbers that are gonna be mentioned about its value in just a moment, it comes out to being worth around a year's wages, a year's wages, and would cost over $1,000 per ounce in today's currency. That's what we're talking about. And she has a jar of it. It would have been most likely imported from India. And it's also something that would be used to prepare a body for burial in order to mask the smell of death. This perfume was also most likely Mary's dowry, something that would have been kept to be given to her future husband that most women in that culture had and would save for their wedding day. But she decides that she's gonna use it on Jesus her true and first and greatest love. So make a note of this. Mary's worship was costly. Mary's worship was costly. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, underline anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And when Mark gives his account of this event, he tells us the perfume was in an alabaster flask and she poured it on his head. And I want you to know that detail is not contradictory, it's complementary. In his account, Mark tells us that Jesus says, she's come to anoint my body for burial, his whole body. So this means that the perfume could have been poured on his head and allowed to flow down over Jesus' entire body, which is, by the way, how anointings were done when the prophet Samuel anoints David or any kind of anointing takes place in the scriptures, we have the idea of, you know, a a tiny little dab of oil. That's sort of our modern culture because somewhere, somebody along the way said, hey, I'm sick and I want to be anointed and have the elders lay hands on me and pray, but I don't really want a whole jar of oil uh, dripping off me. After the church service, so can you just use a little bit? And somewhere somebody said, yeah, sure, that's fine. And so that's become our tradition. But in their tradition, anointing would mean like a a jar of oil poured over you that would drip over your whole body to the ground. So it's very likely that that is what had happened, or she could have simply poured it over his whole body. We've got to get the mental picture that she doesn't have like a tiny little flask that she's pouring out on his feet and then rubbing with her hair, this, this is like a, a jar, this is a significant amount that's poured out over the whole body of Jesus. And I love this about Mary, she shows up three times in the Gospels and every time she shows up, she's at the feet of Jesus. That's who she is and what a way to be remembered. However, it would have been fairly awkward for everyone else present as they would not have understood the significance of what Mary was doing and actually would have considered it to be wildly inappropriate because in that culture, it was not considered right for a woman to appear in public with her hair untied and loose. And in Jewish culture, a woman's hair was considered her glory, her glory. It's not considered a Man's glory, because even back then there were too many cases when the glory had departed. Ichabod, the glory has departed. All right. So Bible students, tune in. Perceive and understand here the picture the Word of God is painting for us. You see, our glory, our greatest accomplishments, our best features Our most prominent talents, our most illustrious accomplishments, our career milestones, the greatest wins in life, will all, must all, are all destined to be laid at the feet of Jesus. And there they find more meaning and more beauty and more significance than anywhere else. Really get this, to be a worshiper of Jesus means understanding that the purpose of a crown is to be cast at the feet of Jesus. That's the purpose of a crown. That is the purpose of all glory. All glory will terminate. That means all glory will find its ultimate destination, its end, its fulfillment. In Jesus, That is where all glory is going, like a river that is moving from a higher elevation to a lower elevation, the irreversible course, destiny, terminus of all glory in the universe is Jesus. That's where it's all going. And write this down. Mary's worship was externally visible. Mary's worship was externally visible. You know, when you're worshiping the Lord at home, You can sit in a comfortable chair, have your daily devotions, and ponder the greatness of God with sincerity. That's wonderful. But when you come into the church, when you come into the house of God to be with the church, to be with the people of God, that kind of unexpressive worship doesn't help anybody else in the church. If I say, are you doing okay? It doesn't help me at all if you say, oh, brother, if you could see inside. I'm doing cartwheels right now before the Lord. I'm running laps around the auditorium with that flag in the corner. It doesn't encourage others. It doesn't strengthen others. It doesn't provide an example for anybody else. When we gather as the church, all of us, we have a duty to each other to be expressive worshipers. We need to sing out loud so other people can hear us. That's okay. We need to raise our hands as a sign of blessing To the Lord. We need to clap. We need to find a way to outwardly express what's going on on the inside of us because it's not first and foremost even about us. Why? Because when Mary worshiped the Lord extravagantly, expressively, look what the word of God says happened next. And, and then underline, the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. You see, when believers gather together to worship the Lord extravagantly and expressively, man, the house is filled with the fragrance of worship. It's the feeling we've all had, I hope you've had, when you find yourself in a room worshiping with other people who are genuinely passionate about worshiping the Lord expressively and the presence of God is just, it's it's tangible feel like you could reach out and touch it. That's what happens when we show up and say, I don't care if there's a cost. I'm here to worship the Lord. I don't care if I'm tired. I'm here to bless Jesus and do it in a way that's externally visible that others might join with me. And that can happen today. It's not a mystical formula where we say, oh, you know, we're five people short of the glory of God being really tangible today, or you know we're short a keyboard player, or the drummer doesn't have wind chimes, so we're close, but not quite there. It can happen today in the worship following this message. The house can be filled with the fragrance of worship, and if you choose to do that, I promise you'll be blessed today. Now, perhaps you've experienced that that sweetness, that fragrance of the Lord, at a gathering of believers, but but then you get in the car, and it's gone. And you're trying to figure out what happened and suddenly you're driving and cussing at other people and you know it's wrong because you're still in the parking lot and you're just thinking, what happened? I was so high in the service. There was, I was on top of the mountain, man. I was in the presence of God. Well, perhaps it was because you found yourself in this wonderful atmosphere of worship but you never really entered in yourself. And you reap the benefit of being surrounded by some Marys who were really worshiping the Lord extravagantly, really blessing God. And what you were really doing is you were bootlegging off their worship. You were trying to outsource your passion and your expressive worship saying, oh yeah, I'll I'll enjoy the atmosphere while I'm here. But nothing happened in you, if you want that fragrance to mark your life, to follow you out the doors today, you have to join in the adoration of Jesus, not be a spectator to it. Make a note of this because this is, this is big. This, this is understanding worship here. The fragrance of worship stays with the one who poured it out. The fragrance of worship stays with the one who poured it out. If you're not pouring it out, none of it is going to get on you in a way that's going to stick with you. But listen, even when Mary got up from being at the feet of Jesus, that fragrance was still on her. And she smelled like Jesus. The fragrance of worship stays with the one who poured it out. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, he took care of the money for the disciples and Jesus. And he used to take what was put in it. This is a small detail, but one of enormous importance because perhaps you've wondered before, man, was Judas just predestined to betray Jesus? And if he was, was that really fair? Because, I mean, someone had to betray Jesus to make the whole crucifixion thing happen, so did he really have a choice, and was he just pre-damned from birth? But tune in, because this tells us that Judas's heart toward Jesus had been hardened for a long, long time. In fact, the implication is that Judas had been stealing money from Jesus pretty much the whole time Jesus had been ministering. So that means through all the teachings that we read every week, through all the miracles, Judas was literally stealing from the Lord, from Jesus Christ, And you have to have such a hardened heart to do that. I can't even fathom stealing from Jesus while being one of the 12 who is doing life with him. And I would suggest to you that Judas had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. He had reached the spiritual point of no return long before the night he betrayed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This whole scene at the house of Simon with Jesus, the disciples, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, really does seem to be a picture of the church. And in the church, we find Judas. Have you ever wondered when a a believer falls from grace, and I don't mean they lose their salvation, but it comes out that some elder in a church was having an affair. Uh, The treasurer of a church was stealing money from the church the whole time. A pastor has had a secret sin and, and things come caving down. Have you ever had that thought, man, if, if everybody's walking with the Lord, how come nobody discerned anything was wrong? I mean, if we've got elders in this church that are praying and love Jesus, how come none of them could, could see through this? How come the Holy Spirit didn't illuminate it? Is this all just some sort of charade, this gift of discernment, but no one can spot a traitor in our midst? Just remember... Judas was with the disciples for three years. Jesus knew he would betray him, but nobody else figured it out. Nobody else figured out that he was stealing. Nobody else saw it coming. Even on the night when he leaves the Last Supper to go and talk to the Pharisees and the chief priests, tell them where Jesus is going to be, nobody's thinking, oh, that's what Judas is going to do. (laughs) Even when Jesus says, the one I give this piece of bread to, He gives it to Judas, Judas takes off, and they're still like, who could it be? (laughs) Nobody figures it out. Nobody figures out Judas isn't even saved. They don't figure it out. So listen, there's always gonna be people, the Bible calls them wolves, who are sent by Satan into the church to try and bring destruction, to try and lead people astray. And the truth is, it's gonna be like this till the rapture. I've actually kept a list of some names over the years I'd like to share with you. But no, never mind, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not gonna do that. The point is this. Don't be surprised when you find a wolf in the church. Don't be surprised when that happens. Jesus told us it would happen. It happened to him. It's gonna happen in the church. And as a side note, it's at this point that Judas is gonna head out to make the agreement with the chief priests to betray Jesus. It's as if he's realizing, "Uh uh-oh, I think Jesus is on to me. Verse 7, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. You see, some biblical scholars believe that Mary understood that Jesus would soon die, and she's doing this intentionally. I share that just to let you know that view is out there. I don't necessarily hold to that view. I think it was just an act of devotion on her part that the Holy Spirit used to symbolically anticipate Jesus's death. But either way, you can come to your own conclusion on that. Jesus wasn't disparaging the poor or saying they are not important. What he's saying is that he was only going to be physically on the earth for a short time longer, and after he returned to heaven, the poor would still be on earth and they'd still need caring for, they'd still be around. The principle then and now is this, really get this, worshiping Jesus is the single most important ministry there is on earth. Worshiping Jesus is the single most important ministry there is on earth. It's more important even than caring for the poor. What an important thing that is for the church to remember. It's why we as a church hold the belief that the church exists first and foremost for Jesus, to bless him and minister to him. Make a note of this. The primary purpose of the church is to bless and minister to Jesus. It's the primary purpose of the church. It's the destiny of the church as the bride of Christ is to minister to and to bless Jesus. Everything else, flows out of that just as we talked about last week our goal is to abide in Jesus our goal is to love him well and out of that as a byproduct of that the fruit of that is everything else evangelism missions caring for the poor community everything the church exists first and foremost for Jesus it's his church he invented it he is going to marry it it is his church I love what Mark records Jesus said. I put it on your outlines. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She's come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, this is just so moving to me. Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, What this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. You see, the greatest, highest form of ministry is one we're all called to. It's ministry to the Lord. Understanding that because we've been adopted into the family of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus, the Bible says, sons and daughters of the Father, because we've been brought in, with that comes the unbelievable reality that we can bless our heavenly father and our brother jesus because we're family we have the ability to be a blessing to the lord it's incredible to minister to the lord is to understand that you have the ability to bless him and to then respond by seeking to do just that. Bless him, minister to him with our praise, with our thanks, our confession, our prayers, our worship, that blesses him. And that's what Mary is doing here. She's ministering to Jesus and he is blessed by her. How much is he blessed? Blessed so much, he says, I'm gonna make sure people never forget what she's done for me. That's how much he's blessed by her. I'm gonna ask you to make a note of this then I'll unpack it a little bit. True worship is for Jesus. True worship is for Jesus. You know if you listen to Christian radio, music radio, uh, there's a profile that almost every song has to fit. You might not know this. Here's how it works. Christian labels basically came up with a fictional person. They did the demographic studies, the listener studies and they said okay, if we had to create a person who was the representation of who our listeners are at a Christian radio, they came up with this person. It's a woman that they call Becky, I think. Um, They gave her a name, and she's a soccer mom uh, in her late 30s. She's driving an SUV, and she's taking her two kids to soccer practice, and she wants to hear songs about how everything is going to be okay that mention struggles in a vague sort of sense so that they could apply to drug addiction, or having to do another load of laundry. So that's what she wants, and that's what sells on Christian radio, and so that's how songs are written for Christian radio. That's why you don't generally hear a, a lot of worship songs on Christian radio. It's songs about how everything's gonna be okay. That's what you need to hear when you got a bunch of young kids. The problem is that we can bring that consumer mindset into our personal and corporate worship, and suddenly the point of worship becomes what we need to get out of a song. And we subtly do this when we say things like, you know, I really liked worship today. And I understand that sometimes we're we're being sincere and what we mean by that is I, I sense the presence of the Lord and that's wonderful, but a lot of the time what we really mean is that we like the songs that were sung. We like that the band didn't make any massive mistakes today. We like that for once the volume wasn't too loud. And the mix was better than it normally is. And without really realizing it, we're judging how good our time of worship together was based entirely on what we like. It was what I like, therefore, it was good. And the truth is that whether you or I get anything out of our worship time is not really the priority. It's not really the point. The priority is was Jesus blessed by our worship today? Was Jesus blessed by our worship today? You see, it's not about a a musical style or instrumentation or how the room is decorated or lighted. It's about the heart. Do you remember the story when King David was coming back into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant and he's just giddy over this event taking place he's so excited to have the ark of the covenant the presence of the lord returning to Jerusalem so he he strips down to his undergarment which again church myth he's not like in tidy whities he's just in like a one-piece robe, basically, that you would wear under a robe. And he's got this priestly-like apron on, and he's stripped down to this so that he can have freedom to move, because apparently he's like a wild and crazy dancer. Bible even says he's jumping around, he's twirling around, he is just going forward, he is so fired up that the presence of God is coming back into his city. And he is just on a spiritual high, man. He is full of the fragrance of worship. He shows up at home, he's ready to pronounce a blessing on his, house because he's on this spiritual high and there is one of his wives Michael to perfectly ruin the moment she says man you made a fool of yourself you look like an idiot out there I hope you're pleased with yourself and she mocks his expression of worship and what the Lord does is he says this bothers me and Michael is made barren she never has another kid again You see, the Lord cares so much about the heart we have in worship. He doesn't like it when we talk down on anybody's expression of worship when it's sincere. You know, there are churches where people are skipping down the aisles, waving flags, and dancing. That's not my thing. I think it would be distracting in our church. If you're thinking about doing it, please don't. But there are churches where they're cool with that. And it's not distracting, because that's their thing and the people are sincere, and and I might not get it, but God does, and if the heart is right, he's blessed, and I better keep my mouth shut because nobody really cares what I think about their expression of worship. The issue is what does Jesus think about their expression of worship? You know, I've been to churches that sung only hymns, and it was dead, but I've also been to churches that sung only hymns, I could barely get the words out of my throat because the people were so sincere. And I know Jesus was blessed. I've been in worship services that rock way harder than we do. And I've sensed it's just an empty show. It doesn't really matter if the Holy Spirit shows up or not. But I've also been in worship services with that exact same edgy style and wept because of the genuine passion of the worship team and the people in that church. You see, it's not about musical style. I hate to be the one to tell you this, but one style is not more anointed than another. And I know you may be thinking, but Jesus used an organ and he sang hymns. He he didn't, he didn't. It's not about musical style. It's about the heart. The question's not, was I blessed? The question is, was Jesus blessed? So make a note of this. There's only one question that matters in worship. Was Jesus blessed? Was Jesus blessed? And it's such a different mindset because it's so easy to show up to a worship service or to church and say, yeah, I'm thinking I might worship, but I also just wanna see where this is gonna go. Is it gonna be a good day musically, rough day musically? What are the song choices gonna be? It's very different when the priority is Jesus being blessed because you show up and you say, I'm here to bless God, period. That is going to happen. Whether the worship team is awful today or amazing, whether I even like the songs or not, I came to bless God and I plan on leaving with that mission accomplished. Here's what we know. When Jesus is blessed, we end up being blessed more than we could possibly imagine our burdens are lifted, our spirits are strengthened, and all that good stuff, it just happens. But the purpose of worship is to bless God and remember that he's always worthy of being blessed. I wanna encourage you to make that your personal goal when you come to church. Come to bless God. And when we do that, when we make ministering to Jesus the highest goal of our church, this will become a house, a place, where Jesus loves to hang out, a place where he shows up and blesses those who are present, meeting them in fellowship at the Lord's table. I want this to be a church where Jesus loves to come hang out, just like he'd love to go to Bethany because he was ministered to there. I want Jesus to feel that way about us, about our church, about what it's like when we get together, that we're here for him, that he's welcome here, that he's wanted here more than growth, even more than salvations. I want this church to be a place where Jesus feels ministered to. And I wanna encourage you and invite you to join me in striving for that goal. Verse nine, now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. Underline that they might also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. When someone dies and it's witnessed and verified by hundreds of people and they went to the funeral and that person is then raised to life, walks out their tomb still wrapped in the bandages, well, that gets people talking. And so while all these Jewish men and families are making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, some of them decide, let's go through Bethany so that on the way we can stop and see if the rumors are true that there's a man named Lazarus in Bethany who was raised from the dead by Jesus of Nazareth. Lazarus is serving the Lord by being his witness. Understand this. He's not witnessing. He's not knocking on doors saying, what's up? I'm Lazarus, you may remember me from such incidents as my previous death. He's not doing that, he's being a witness by just being alive. It's the same thing that the Lord told his disciples they would do. He didn't say you will witness, you will go witnessing. He said you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And who can forget that famous line that Lazarus says, except he doesn't because there's not a single recorded word that Lazarus spoke in the Bible, anywhere. And yet he serves as one of the greatest witnesses and testimonies of the saving grace and goodness of God, of his incredible power over death. When people who were dead suddenly start living, people notice, people notice. And all Lazarus is doing is he's just sitting at the Lord's table, fellowshipping with the Lord, His very life is a witness. It's a radical example of the model that we're called to live out. For we too are called to be people who fellowship with the Lord, who can be found at his table, the Lord's table, the table of communion. And while it's true that none of us are yet who we should be, praise God we're not who we would be were it not for the grace and goodness of God. We're not who we should be, but we're not who we would be. And over time, over the course of a life spent in fellowship with the Lord, people notice that there's life where there should be death. People notice when you're not shaken or afraid when everyone else is panicking. People notice when you're facing sickness and trials, and yet you somehow still have peace and joy and hope. People notice when there's life where there's supposed to be death over the course of a life spent in fellowship with the Lord. People will notice in your life the presence and the power of God. Lazarus is serving the Lord by being his witness, not by witnessing, by just being his witness. And this is where the picture of what the church is to be all comes together. For we have Mary worshiping at the feet of Jesus with extravagant devotion. Above all else, we're called to worship. The church is called to be worshipers. That's the first fill-in in that list. We're called to be worshipers, all of us. Then we have Martha working faithfully to take care of the needs of the church body. As the church, we're called to be workers. We're called to work as well. And finally, as we've seen, we have Lazarus sitting at the table with the Lord, being his witness, just as we too are called to be his witnesses. The purpose of the church, the body of Christ, you and I, is to worship the Lord, work to meet the needs of the church body, and live lives that serve as a witness to the goodness and greatness of God. It's not pick one of these three. It's all of these three, for all of us. We're all called to be extravagant, expressive worshipers of Jesus. We're all called to find a way to serve the church body and we're all called to fellowship with the Lord through communion at his table and live lives that are a witness and bring glory to God. It's the picture of the church. Verse 10, but the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. We've taken the time and other messages to discuss the, the tragedy of this sort of spiritual blindness. It's a hard-heartedness, a determination to not believe, a resolve to remain disconnected from the truth. And what it does is it takes over a person until they reach the point where they're no longer interested in the truth or even able to perceive the truth. Instead, they become so determined to believe what they wanna believe that they become hostile to anything that would disprove their desired beliefs. Even when the evidence is overwhelming, they don't reconsider their position, they simply conspire to destroy the evidence against their position, which in this case was Jesus and Lazarus. And it's a spirit we see alive and well in our day. Many of us have had conversations with people where we've been able to share some incredible evidence for the existence of God or the resurrection of Jesus only to have that person simply move on to their next objection or their next point rather than dealing with the fact that they've just encountered evidence for the Lord. At its most extreme form, this is what that sort of hard-heartedness looks like when it's fully developed we found a man who proves Jesus is the Messiah, then we must kill that man. I also have to laugh at the futility of their logic. Lazarus has been raised from the dead by Jesus. He has power over death. Now everyone's going to believe in him. Let's kill Lazarus. But didn't you just say he has power over death? Won't he just raise him again if you kill him again? And then even more people will believe? But it's the sort of clouded reasoning you find yourself in when you begin to oppose the Lord Jesus and the more you conspire to oppose him the more you prove who he is and the more you prove the folly of man's attempts at understanding outside of God One of the ways we can utilize the beautiful picture of the church that's illustrated in today's passage is just as a checkup for our own spiritual health. Sometimes we need to be reminded that we are the church. It's us, it's the people of God. And so very simply and practically, I want us to each ask ourselves the question, am am I being a worshiper, am I being a worker, am I being a witness? And it's not a trick question. A bunch of you are hitting it out the park and it's awesome. Am I making it the goal of my life to be first and foremost a worshiper of God, one who ministers to and blesses Jesus? Am I joyfully serving the body of Christ? Have I found my place of service in the church? Am I living as a witness, a monument of God's grace, goodness, and greatness? Am am I remembering that everywhere I go, everything I do, I'm to be a witness. A piece of evidence is the literal idea here. An exhibit of what it looks like when God raises a dead person to life. How are we doing at being the church? I want this church to be a place where Jesus feels ministered to. And so he loves to show up in amazing ways. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you for your word and thank you for The picture of your grace and your church that you paint for us in the scriptures. Father, it is our desire to be successful at the thing in life that matters most, the ministry that is most important. Father, we recognize that the ministry that matters the most is not the one with the most people watching or the most publicity. The greatest and highest ministry there is is the worship and adoration of you, of your son, Jesus. Father, empower us by your Holy Spirit to minister to your son, Jesus, to bless him, to honor him, to bring him joy, God, to take our rightful place in the family of God and understand that you have somehow imbued us with the ability to be a blessing to you. We don't want to recognize that and go on living the same way. We want to have hearts that say, well, if you've given me the ability to bless you, then I want to bless you with all my strength, all my might, my heart, my soul, my mind, all of it. And Father, we measure success of our gathering by this criteria. Was Jesus blessed we want you to be blessed Lord I pray that you would inhabit our praises that they would be a fragrance that is beautiful to you Lord God and that we would leave here today with the aroma of your presence your spirit all over us Lord God you be honored and you be glorified Jesus